Morning, Kion. Yes, Greg. I'm wearing a pink and purple V-neck shirt, but that's not an invitation for you and your bro friends to leer at me and make whispered asides. Believe me, I know what goes on. Four or five of you pounding brewskis and watching degrading porn and killing prostitutes on your Grand Theft Auto games before you flip over to the NFL and debate who has the hottest cheerleaders. Do you know most of them don't even make minimum wage? Do you, Greg? As if you would care, because it's bros before hoes forever. Ain't that right, Greg? That's the message when you and your buds listen to those Jim Rome sports talk shows. But if you towel-snapping frat boys think you're going to turn me into some kind of fantasy pole dancer, guess what, Greg? Guess what? Actually, Kion, I don't have many male friends. And you know what I really miss? Being a, a boy who could really talk to his mom and not be afraid to play in a gentle way. Oh, Greg, I'm so sorry. I guess I really overstepped. Nah, I was just messing with you. I was playing with you about the other thing, too. Go ahead and leer at me. I am smoking hot today, huh? Right. So, lunch? Totally. I'll text you at noon. Hey, if you found that conversation confusing, get ready for a show about men trying to sort out their roles. And now, the guy who invented the phrase, man down. Colin McEnroe. Right. Well, everybody says, I don't really, I didn't really invent it so much as I epitomize it. I mean, everybody says man up, but they neglect the part. I mean, you can't, you can't man up forever, right? At a certain point, you have to man down again. Um, All right. So we are going to talk about masculinity. I think I'm going to begin. Well, no, let me tell you who's on the show. That's what I'll do first. Um, Because I'm a man and men are decisive. Uh, (laughs) Michael Kimmel is a professor of uh, of sociology and gender studies at Stony Brook, Mass- uh, Stony Brook University. He directs the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Guyland, The Perilous World, Where uh, Boys Become Men, and most recently, Angry White Men. Steve Allman uh, is the author of many books, including God Bless America, Stories, and Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. He's currently co-hosting Dear Sugar Radio, a very hot podcast right now with Cheryl Strayed. In a little bit of time, you will meet Sandra Newman. She is the author of How Not to Write a Novel and The Country of Ice Cream Star. She recently wrote an essay for either, it's either Eon or Ion. We can never figure this out. No, we've never established it. It's like the greatest online magazine in the world. But, and we use it all the time for guests and ideas, and we don't know how to pronounce the name of it. Uh, I don't know what that says. Anyway, she recently wrote an essay for a magazine to be named later called Is There Anything Wrong with Men Who Cry? So... You know, I'm sort of trying to think of how to get into this topic. Oh, you know, we're going to sort of we're going to be talking about evolving attitudes towards masculinity, but they're always evolving, right? I mean, I I don't know. I was in in the 1970s. I dropped in a couple of times at men's sensitivity groups where guys, a tiny, tiny splinter fragment of the male population, would meet and talk about how to be more sensitive, you know, and 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 how not to sacrifice your basic masculinity while being sensitive. And, and I realized this really was just a non-representative sample. But, um, but you know, where to begin and how to begin. So uh, doing some of the reading to get ready for the show, I ran into this. Um, it's actually a book review, part of a book review by Martin Amos. Uh, and he kind of goes through a history of male, maleness. This was written in 1991. So in some ways, it will be interesting to consider the changes since then. Uh, he says, what is the deep background on the deep male? From 100,000 B.C. until, let's say, 1792, Mary Wollstonecraft and her vindication of the rights of women, there was simply the man whose main characteristic was that he got away with everything. From 1792 until about 1970, there was 
was, in theory anyway, the enlightened man who, while continuing to get away with everything, agreed to meet women for talks about talks which would lead to political concessions. Post-1790, post-1970, the enlightened man became the new man who isn't interested in getting away with anything, who believes indeed that the female is not merely equal to the male but but is his plain superior. The masculine cultivation of his feminine side can be seen as a kind of homage to a better and gentler principle. Well, the new man is becoming an old man, perhaps prematurely, what with all the washing up he's done. There he stands in the kitchen, a nappy in one hand, a pack of tarot cards in the other, with his sympathetic pregnancies, his hot fleshes in contact, premenstrual tensions, and with a duped frown on his aging face. The time is ripe, and now the back door swings open, and in he comes, preceded by a gust of testosterone and a few tumbleweeds of pubic hair. The old man, the deep male, Iron John. So this is a prelude to Martin Amos's book, uh, review of the book uh, Iron John, which was Robert Bly writing in the 1990s, sort of saying, well, you know, men got more sensitive and somehow there was this sort of gelding process that that went with that. And so we've got to reclaim our masculinity. And suddenly you had guys with goatskin drums out in the woods dancing around campfires. And it was a very easy movement to lampoon. But, you know, in a way, those two tensions never entirely go away. That notion that really ultimately we men ought to join the human race and participate in a much more egalitarian way and this sort of sense that there's some basic thing called maleness that that bumps up against that. So I think that's what we're going to be talking about a lot today. We're going to talk about some of the spheres in which it does change and maybe some of this, well, definitely some of the spheres, parentheses, sports, close parentheses, where it never seems to change very much. So, Michael Kimmel, uh, I'm going to begin with you. Um, You know, even I think for some people, the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities the notion that there could be men's studies, it would strike some people like, you know, when I was a little kid, you know, there was Mother's Day and there was Father's Day. And I used to say, well, when's Children's Day? And my parents would say, every day is every Children's day. day. And 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 so that's sort of been the attitude towards men for a while, right? There's no point in studying men, men's culture or men because they run everything. They, in the words of Amos, get away with everything. So what is what subculture is there to study? What's changed? Uh, well, exactly that. Uh, it used to be exactly as you say. It used to be that uh, uh, didn't have the word women in it. it. Was a course about thing to study. Um, you know, men. You know, masculinity was kind of just the thing. Masculinity. It was like you. You know, there were women, and then there were people. Mm-hmm. It was you, humanity. There was mankind, and it was completely invisible that gender had anything to do with men. Um, that has changed. Uh, we now understand that gender is as important to, to men as it is as, as women have understood it is to, the, to, to them. Uh, this is relatively new. That, uh, but I, I, you know, so I, I think in part one of the things that we're talking, what we ought to be talking about is how did we miss this for so long? You know, there's an old expression, you know, the fish are the last to discover the ocean. I think that's part of it. I think we basically didn't think it had anything to do with us. So uh, we're going to um, talk some more about this. Um, I'm actually going to put you on hold for a second so we can uh, have a conversation with you off the air about your phone, which is cutting out a little bit. Uh, I'll bring Steve Allman into the, into the conversation. So, Steve uh, Allman, you have been kind of, you've been challenging certain shibboleths, right? Certain, um, you know, just unassailable truths about um, men and about sports and specifically about football. Um, actually, uh, Wolfie, maybe uh, just to get Steve in the mood, let's give him a little hermit 
Edwards here. <laughs> this is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. You don't play to just play it. That's the great thing about sports. You play to win. And I don't care if you don't have any wins. You go play to win. When you start telling me it doesn't matter, then retire. Get out. Because it matters. So, uh, Steve Allman, uh, you wrote, uh, what I'm asking here is, do we ever outgrow our savagery? Is there any way uh, to strip from us the masculine pathologies acquired over millions of years of evolution? Let me put all this in a more personal light. How am I protected to protect my son from a world that lives inside of me? Um, and, and I guess the, my first question to you is, do you feel as though you have to protect your son from all of that world? I mean, there must be some qualities of masculinity, even ones that have to do with assertiveness and camaraderie and a kind of um, sexually based bonding. I mean, sex rules based bonding. Um, I mean, some of those things aren't inherently bad, are they? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, the, the greatest danger, it seems to me, in, in having masculine studies or having a show that has to do with masculinity is a kind of reflexive vilification. I grew up as a jock, not a very good one, but a pretty, you know, I played soccer in high school and college and a bunch of other manly sports like squash and badminton. And, you know, I had two brothers. I grew up in a mostly male house. And, you know, I, some of my best friends are men, you know. Uh, it's not a matter of saying, uh, you know, boy, masculinity is just this condition characterized by violence and intolerance and aggrieved entitlement and all these other things, and we just got to figure out how to game plan it. I'm, you know, it seems to me that there's a culture, there's two things. There are men themselves, and then there's the culture around us, which has to do, it's sort of the Herm Edwards version of this, where these central incentives are making money by making people feel insecure and that plays out in all sorts of ways that have been parsed when it comes to women. But I don't think it's been deeply examined when it comes to what's happened to the masculine ideal in this country. Because on a separate track from the alleged enlightenment that Amos is writing about very eloquently is this other track, which is what, what America does, what late model capitalism does, which is try to figure out how to make particular people insecure so they'll buy, buy something to feel le you know, more secure. And that's this, to me, that, that's where I sort of see the pathologies of masculinity be, being fed, the part of us that is ready to become sort of Lord of the Flies, to let a zero-sum game, anybody else who's gaining is my loss, take over. What are the positive manly virtues of comradeship, all the stuff that you were talking about, that basically I'm proud and happy about. I'm glad that I'm a man. I'm glad that I can hang out with friends of mine. I like playing sports. I like being able to enact a certain amount of aggression just to get it out of my system because I think the modern man especially is pretty neutered when it comes to what our lives used to be like and what our identity used to be like and the millions of years that our brains and hearts evolved you know, in a way that did privilege our domination, our ability to hunt and kill things, our ability to dominate somebody else physically and psychologically. You don't just make that go away by pretending that we're going to have an enlightened discussion. It's a real set of feelings. 
And my feeling is you just have to be aware and manage that stuff, and especially the way that, that men are being manipulated by these images of hyper-masculinity that are completely crazy, this sort of pornification, the muscle-bound version. Think about who our movie stars are now. It used to be Cary Grant, right? You know, and what would you say about him? He was just charming, and he, was, he didn't have huge... Now it's, it's you know, uh, uh, Matthew Bourne or whatever his name is. It's this kind of muscle-bound killer who will, you know, who can, who can strike a lethal blow with his pinky, and I feel like that's happened writ large at the same time that we're supposedly becoming more enlightened. I think there is this entire industry that's trying to make men feel insecure and, and, and actually take advantage of the insecurities that men do feel in a world that is more and more rightly egalitarian as a way of selling products. Well, you know, Michael Kimmel, I guess the part that I sort of wonder about is whether or not some of these uh, phenomena that that you and Steve are describing are essentially getting kind of ghettoized, you know, that 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 in a way, one of the things that's happened is that um, a, a door has slowly closed and that door is the one that has the stairs that lead to the top that that, you know, acting on those that you know, when you watch a movie like Wolf of Wall Street, you know, where, in fact, the, there's this incredible sort of frat boy exploitive porn loving, hooker paying, blow ingesting culture. It's I feel like I'm watching a dying civilization that that's really not going to work anymore. That in the modern workplace, if you really want to make a lot of money and have a good job, you can't act on those impulses most of the time anyway. And that it's getting ghettoized and almost literally ghettoized. It's it's maybe being shoved into a different socioeconomic um, core uh, of, of people who don't have those kinds of chances to succeed and or fail in an in an environment that really does police itself differently now. I don't react to that. Well, first, I I, I just want I want to apologize about the telephone. That's all right. Uh, but the first thing is, you know, I completely agree with with Steve's point and connects very much to the question that you just asked me, which is that what what I think happens, and I even hear it in some of Steve's you know evocation of this long lost masculinity of of sort of controlled aggression and, you know, being a warrior and all of that sort of stuff. I think nostalgia is what hooks us into buying stuff to reclaim a, a masculinity that has that we feel somehow used to be so much easier and so much better and so right. much more available and so much more in control and so, you know, and, and, and so much more powerful. And we buy that stuff, and, and I think that's why people like men. I think it's why people flock to Robert Bly, because he said also the great ma masculine ideal is something that was once there in the Homeric age, in the mythic age, but it's not there anymore, and we have to retrieve it. Look at the language, retrieve, restore, reclaim. It's all a kind of backward-looking idea. My feeling is that this is one of the reasons that men, A, as Steve says, are hooked on consumption of things that are going to make us look like you know, the kind of ectomorphic um, transformers that used to run around in, in movies like 300. Um, this is what we think. It's, it's in our bodies. We're going to just pump ourselves up and we'll look like it. We're not like that. Or, or ideas, for example, like, like just the, the, you know, the kind of alcohol, we drink, the kind of cars we drive. There's a massive amount of nostalgia in that. And my thinking is that here, and here's the key, young men, they buy it at the kind of fantasy level, but in, the re in their real lives, they don't buy it at all. Young men entering the workplace today want to be awesome dads. 
young men entering the workplace today assume their wives are going to work outside the home and be just as committed to their careers as they are. So here's the story we have been telling in social science, a story of a growing gap between the lives men are actually living as family men, as men who are really committed to their careers, committed to their families, and this crazy idea of masculinity. And it's in that gap between these ideals that we think we're supposed to be and the lives that we're actually living where we've been privileging the fantasy and trying to recreate it. So as locker rooms close, every single boardroom now has women in it, every single you know, corporation, every single law firm, every single hospital operating theater, we recreate them in fantasy. We have our man caves. We have our places where we can go, where we can let our, our hair down, where we can exhale, where we don't feel like we're so relentlessly co- corrected. Time. It's all about nostalgia. And so, I, Steve, then the question becomes, what's wrong with that? Well, I mean, I think one thing that you say, one of the things that's wrong with that is that you really do wind up having sort of by proxy a whole bunch of people play out um, some of these things that kind of in all the ways that Michael Kimmel just said aren't palatable anymore in the boardroom. Aren't I mean, you can't work at public radio and act like that. But but you can you can go home and watch football. And so you watch football. And so then a lot of these values are are still exalted. But your point is that it's it is sort of like having a bunch of guys who by proxy are reenacting this whole Spartan, you know, 300 existence including putting their bodies on the line sort of for us because we're not going to do that stuff anymore. Well, we don't do that stuff. I mean, part of what the football, just because, uh, you know, I've, I've been thinking about it and feeling about it for 40 years and I'm finally an apostate. I've been, you know, uh, I've, I've turned my back on the game as a consumer. You know, that is a refuge. It's a place of refuge and the values that it represents are, they're not, um, you know, 1950s values or even suffrage values, you know, they're, they're medieval values. You know, men are dominant and aggressive and women are sexual ornaments. And, and yet that's the most mainstream sport there is, or at least it's the most hugely popular. And I think what we do, and, and Michael's getting at this, is there's a kind of, um, you were referring to it as ghettoizing. What there is is the world that lives inside of us, our internal private world, which is filled with confusion and rage and grievance about uh, our sort of male prerogative being displaced and compromised. And then there's the external gloss that we put on it, especially NPR types like me, right? Mm -hmm. And the reality is, I think, that that the the private internal world that's raging and that wants to dominate and finds those fantasies of domination and dominion in football, in pornography, in, you know, single-shooter video games – um, in these movies, I mean, look at our popular culture. It's a wash, and it's absolutely a wash in pornographic violence, most of which is about a sort of power fantasy. And we could say, well, that's terrible and misogynist, and we could sort of wag our finger at it. But those narratives are popular because they have deep psychological and emotional meaning to people, just like football's popular because it has deep meaning. Because inside every well-heeled, respectful NPR listener is this voice of Herm Edwards saying, God damn it, the only thing that matters is that you win. Hit the line hard. Put your man down. And I don't think you get rid of those feelings by denying them or decrying them. I think you, get, you, you, you manage them. That's the best you can hope to do is to sort of be cognizant of them, aware that they're a real part of how you sometimes feel, and then don't act on them. And in particular, don't allow them to be exploited. 
that's what's so funny. If you listen to sports talk radio, which is kind of the national capital of this sort of aggrieved entitlement, what you hear is this constant drumbeat of complaint. And then you listen to all the ads and they're about balding and about Viagra and all the drugs that are going to give you virility again. And it's this sad disjunction. I see it in somebody like Donald Trump. You want to talk about nostalgia. That guy is telling one story over and over again, a story about how really we've lost our way. America's a bunch of losers now. But if you have a strong guy like me, a big chieftain with my big floppy hair, I'm going to restore America's greatness. You just need one alpha dog and the pack is going to be restored. And on the one hand, we could tease him and put him aside. But why is he so massively popular to a large swath of the, of, of the American public? Because he represents a place of security where men were in charge and it was unequivocal and everybody could kind of just relax. So, you know, uh, listening to him, uh, Michael, I'm, I'm also wondering whether we've also become a nation that kind of we read one script in very different ways. So, you know, half of us are looking at Donald Trump and thinking pretty much what Steve Allman just said. And then the other half are, are, yeah, are saying, well, yeah, that's that's the voice that we're not hearing right now. We really need to hear that voice. I think about a movie like American Sniper, where we see, you know, this the Bradley Cooper character and he's being he, he we even see him brought up, Michael, by some of the institutions that I know you think are sort of breaking down and, and not teaching maleness anymore. But he's got a father who teaches him how to hunt, right? And you get the feeling he grows up in a small town with church, with family, with father. And, and then he grows up to be this killing machine. And half the people watching the movie are going, man, his soul has just been destroyed. He's destined to meet a horrible fate, which, of course, he does. And the other half is, are thinking, that's that's a man, you know, that's a warrior. Um, yeah. yeah, we don't have a it's like we, maybe we never had a consensus, but we don't have one now. Well, actually, being a sociologist, it's an occupational hazard to say it's not either or. Mm-hmm. Either, you know, look at the damage that's been done, and secondly, you know, and, and, a, and wow, what a man. I think they're both true. Um, I think that's the recipe. Um, you know, and, and I, and I want to give, give Steve just a bit of a global context here because, you know, I do share some of that, you know, atavistic love of football. Um, but I also want to say that um, outside of the United States, there's not even a ripple. Uh, the sport of the world is soccer, which we regard as a weenie sport. Right. Um, but in fact, the sport of the world is soccer. It is not football. Uh, elsewhere, they regard that as, you know, kind of, and all the equipment. I mean, you really want to see football, take a look at Australia rules. Um, that's where the real guys play without equipment, <laughs> um, without protection. So my feeling is very particular American ideal. Um, and the second thing is that there is that sense, as, as both of you have suggested, of loss. And that idea is what underlies the, the slogan of the Tea Party. Let's take our country back. We've lost it. We have to take it back. That's what Donald Trump is saying. Let's make America great again. We were once great, but now we suck. Let's become great again. Uh, follow me. Um, and that is also the, uh, the, the sense of aggrieved entitlement that I perceived among a lot of angry white men in my book, um, where I talk with guys who feel like uh, th- that that a, a more gender equal, racially equal world is actually reverse discrimination against them. A guy said on a t- on a radio show, a, a black woman stole my job, and I said, "What do you mean, my? <laughs> you know, like where'd you get the idea it was your job?" <laughs> this is what aggrieved entitlement sounds like. And one more thing about this: um, let's not forget the context in which all of this stuff, of this yearning for masculinity, is taking place. It is taking place, as we've all noted, in a world of increasing gender equality, 
One of my friends who wrote a book with the best title of pretty much any book I've ever read was uh, Mariah Burton Nelson's book, The More the More Power Women Get, The More Men Love Football. And that <laughs> strikes me as capturing something about the fact that statistic yearning has something to do with the fact that we are going into much more gender equal workplaces, much more gender equal educational institutions, uh, much more gender equal families. And this yearning for that kind of old ideal of when men were real men is also in relationship to the increased equality of women. Although, Steve Amon, um, I, I want to, I mean, I love that title too, but one thing that you've experienced uh, in your current role uh, as questioner of football is a backlash, and the backlash has not come only from men, right? I mean, if there's nostalgia for something that's been, and if that nostalgia is being preserved in the diorama of the NFL, among the people buying tickets to that diorama are women, some of whom have come down on you harder than men do. Yeah. Absolutely. There, there are two responses to, to being the guy who is, you know, the, the, uh, a very public critic of football. And obviously, Colin, I don't have to tell you, I don't even, I'm not even sure if the NFL is still in business. I, see, I seem to have done my job there and almost entirely annihilated the entire football industrial complex. But assuming there is still some small flickering of interest in football in this country, the people who are, you know, who, who are part of that, Essentially, the, the punishment that is meted out to me by both men and women often involves the revocation of my genitals. That is, the, the central thing that I get called when people write me nasty notes is something I can't say on the radio that's a, a nasty word for female genitalia. And the, the thing that often gets said, even you know, by a woman wrote in the L.A. Times a piece responding to my saying, I'm, I'm boycotting football, here are my reasons for it, was essentially to say, well, you're a wimp. You're against masculinity and you're against men. And I think the reason that there's – I mean, I myself puzzle over the fact that at a time that we seem to have – out of one side of our mouths, the recognition that women are, are men's, not the same as men, but entitled to the same rights, basic rights and workplace rights and wages and so forth as men, there 40% of the fans of football are women. And this is, again, this is something where I feel like the misogyny and that yearning for a kind of traditional recognizable power structure is so internalized that people don't even recognize it. Because I cannot for the life of me figure out how a woman would look at football and look at the way that gender is portrayed in that world and say, I'm buying a ticket to that. I love that idea. So as wonderful a title as, as Michael's friend's book has, the truth of the matter is that women are increasingly huge fans of football. And then that begs the question, to what extent are women also complicit in the attempt to kind of preserve male dominion, this kind of patriarchal prerogative that we can talk about with our superego as being a negative thing and unfair and discriminatory, but inside of us is pulsing the sense that the man is supposed to get the big piece of chicken. He's supposed to sit at the head of the table, and he's supposed to, you know, worship at the altar of the gridiron, where although it's sanitized violence, it's brutally violent. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to add Sandra Newman to the conversation. I'm going to get all three of our guests, Michael Kimmel, Steve Allman, and Sandra, uh, Sandra Newman, to talk uh, a little bit about one facet of this. Let's zero in on one facet. That'll be men who cry. I never shut my eyes. I type Vigie Lewis while I memorize Apache war cries. The sun comes up when I tell it I'm ready. Then I try. 
trim my nose hairs with a razor sharp machete. I'm manly because I'm so handy, even my feet are hands. I built a hobbit house for a homeless man without using any plans. My kid's jungle gym has a full-size trapeze, and I modified my garden hose to dispense nacho cheese. I'm handy too. I'm around in my all right, we're back. The subject is men uh, and masculinity and, and how how the prism through which we view it changes. I think uh, it has changed a lot in recent years. Um, and it's certainly changed a lot over the centuries, too. And that's one of the points made by uh, one of our other guests here, Sandra Newman, uh, the author of How Not to Write a Novel and The Country of Ice Cream Star. She recently wrote an essay for either Ion, Eon, or Aeon. We've never really quite decided how to say it. We love the magazine. We don't know how to pronounce the name of it. Um, and, uh, but the article is called Is There Anything Wrong with Men Who cry. It's a it's an essay, uh, I guess, more than an article. Uh, first of all, Sandra w- uh, Newman, welcome to the conversation. Hi, thanks. Um, and maybe to set the stage, uh, let's hear uh, baseball player uh, Mike Schmidt, uh, a great third baseman, uh, as he announces his retirement from the game. <clears throat> Some 18 years ago, I left Dayton, Ohio, with two very bad knees. in a dream to become a Major League Baseball player. I thank God that the dream came true. All right, so uh, Sandra Newman, uh, that was quite a few years ago, but he was roundly mocked for that. Um, in fact, uh, one uh, radio show, the Imus in the Morning Show, kind of just for years played the clip so that they could just make fun of it um, because there's something wrong. I mean, there's, I, mean, I think maybe not something wrong with maybe a tear running down your cheek while you're listening to the national anthem right before you play football or something, but that, you're just not allowed to do that. Um, and one of the points you make in your essay is it hasn't always been the case. I mean, in the Iliad, you know, I mean, we see the mightiest Greek warriors weeping profusely about things. Weeping is how you you show you're alive, right? Yeah, and in fact, in the Iliad, there are three different occasions in which the entire Greek army unanimously bursts into tears altogether, Um, sometimes because somebody has died, but also at one point just because they think they're going to be beaten, so they're looking at the overwhelming numbers of the opposing army, and they all weep in terror, which is... Not what we would consider to be manly behavior, but in the time that the Iliad was being sung and was written down, that was completely normal. There was, there was no idea like, until, I think until the 16th century, there's no record of cheerfulness being connected to femininity in any way whatsoever. And you have, it's a, it's a very common scene where somebody is telling a sad story, usually a knight, so a knight is telling a sad story, and everybody is sitting to a feast, and they all, men and women, burst into cheers, being affected by the terrible story that they're hearing. And the thing that's most striking about it from the point of view of a contemporary reader is not that they're crying, because, you know, as the example you just gave us shows, men do cry even now, but that nobody finds anything strange about it, Nobody is making fun of the guy next to him because he burst into tears. No, you know, nobody feels ashamed. The men don't try to choke back their tears. They don't dash into the other room to to cry in private. It's considered completely normal to cry in public. And in fact, there there are certain occasions. For instance, when someone is addressing a monarch and asking for a boon, it might be an ambassador on official business. When it's considered normal to cry throughout your speech, in order to more affect your audience, um, and that is, this is all considered not just 
normal masculine behavior, but actually professional masculine behavior. It's something that you would do at work in order to be more effective in your job, which is obviously completely alien to the way we regard peers. But, you know, and certainly we wouldn't think of the medieval period as having more flexible gender boundaries. That's not what we're looking at. What we're looking at is that the meaning of gender boundaries and the semantics around gender changed radically over time. So that at the same time as we have the medieval period and the early Renaissance, when we have men crying publicly, um, and it's part of normal life, we also see that men are wearing absolutely ridiculous garish clothes, which to us would seem feminine. You know, there's no idea that men should not wear um, a gigantic velvet hat with a huge feather on it. Men are wearing stockings. Men are wearing high heels. And none of this is considered feminine. There's no idea that only women wear clothes that are meant for display. So, so you can sort of see that all of the things that we consider to be essential to a real man and immutable are, are relatively recent. Well, you know, I want to talk. Uh, yeah, I, I th- I'm wondering if some of it is also um, situational, Sandra Newman. Let me just swing this over to uh, Steve Allman. So, Steve, you know, we know that there are times when men can cry. You know, you can cry when you're listening to the Lou Gehrig retirement speech. Um, yeah. And you can probably cry, too, when you're watching certain animal movies. Um, yeah, you could definitely cry. In fact, I think there's a law in some states that you have to cry watching Brian's song. I think that might be on the books as a statute. Right. But also watching a movie where a dog dies or something like that. I think I think men can cry. But so in a way, do we have like a different kind of ghettoization that of emotion, too? It's kind of like you can't cry when the boss yells at you. You can't cry uh, when when you when you're fearful. Uh, Like you can't cry in some of the situations that uh, Sandra Newman just described. Right. But you can cry. Interesting. Interestingly, a lot of times you can cry are in those spheres where the rest of you is the rest of your id is also turned loose. Well, I think that it's significant that the Iliad is cited and that knights are cited and that, you know, for us, it would be famous athletes. When you get into situations where you have already proven your valor, I mean, after all, Achilles can weep because he's Achilles. And, you know, if he wants to weep over Patroclus, it's because he's the the biggest, baddest warrior around. The same thing prevails when somebody like Tom Brady bursts into tears um, or in Jerry Maguire, there's this sort of long, that film has this long riff where this football player is saying, you're not going to make me cry, you're not going to make me choke up. The idea, I think, is that if you've already proved your masculinity with beyond the shadow of a doubt by being in combat, by being a soldier, by being a public masculine figure, then it's okay to cry. But I kept thinking, uh, you know, about Ed Muskie. I mean, here's a guy who essentially 20, 30 years ago, I guess, in 72, was a presidential candidate who the very thought that he might have wept publicly was enough to derail his campaign. I still do feel that there is a kind of toxicity to the expression of shame and vulnerability. And you see it in, in its most pernicious form in the case of somebody, you know, somebody like Elliot Rogers, the kid who you know, sh- shot, you know, killed seven uh, people down in Santa Barbara, where there's this public internal sense of deep shame and humiliation of being unmanned and that it takes the form rather than tears, it takes, which is something that might happen in private, its public form is an explosion of violence. That's where I see this disjunction between this internal life that's full of doubt and fear and confusion and a sense of dislocation disconnecting from our public self. 
Well, you know, Michael Kimmel, I'm also wondering whether, I mean, we've, we're sort of talking on this show, I feel like, of rules that exist, but which everybody breaks, you know? And I think this might be another of them. I mean, Ed Muskie might be the last person to really get in a lot of trouble for crying. Bob Dole was a notorious uh, crier, and, and John Boehner has been a notorious crier. And I guess if the fact that I'm using notorious means it's not completely destigmatized. But it's it's not a career-ender, one senses, that, that, you know, under the right circumstances, uh, a man can cry in public and not about the movie Remember the Titans either. I mean, it could be, you know, something, some other reason to become emotional. So I don't know. Is, is there a shift going on? Uh, you know, I think that there's, if there's a shift, it's that men are returning perhaps to being actual human beings. Um, because crying is the expression of that emotion. I mean, we don't have to go back to Homeric uh, uh, literature for this. You look at 19th century United States. Um, women, we, we believe that men and only men were capable of the deep emotional uh, depth that would, that, would, uh, that would be enable them to be the kind of friends who could weep openly about the loss of one of their friends, crying in foxholes uh, at, at Gettysburg crying publicly, um, constantly expressing the deepest affection and emotion for each other. We have, in the, in the 20th century, we have asked men to shut down. We've asked men being human. It is a human quality to, to, to cry when you feel sad. It is also a human quality to cry. I, I, you know, I, I defy anybody who's listening, to, you know, who, has a, who has a child, to remember when they walked into their child's bedroom and their child was sleeping peacefully at age three, and you didn't sit there and just burst into tears. It's so beautiful. It is so moving. That is human. It's not. And so, so my argument earlier is that men may be may be actually becoming human beings, real people, not simply this kind of you know hypermuscular ectomorph, um, but rather a real person with real feelings, capable of actually. Them. Now, it still gets you in trouble because there members that John public, right? And, and believe me, you know, you're not going to see Hillary cry in public. Well, she did once, and actually it was, it was accounted a little bit of a triumph. She did in New Hampshire four years ago, and, and some people thought, well, yeah, we, we kind of needed to see that. But Sandra Newman, I want to swing back to you. So one of the things we've said earlier on this show, and I'd love to get your reaction, is that what we— I think few people really want all the traces of maleness, the things that we associate with um, with with male as male qualities to completely go away, that certain kinds of assertiveness are okay, certain kinds of male camaraderie are okay. We don't want to toxify the entire male model so that there's nothing that's quintessentially male that's, that it's not, that's not worthy of opprobrium. But I'm wondering if you've actually sort of hit on something that's, that's a key that unlocks this. It's kind of like, show us the other side of you. Show us some vulnerabilities. Show us your, the ability to cry appropriately. And and then we'll let you have on the other side some of the things that that strike you, the man, as fundamentally male stuff that you need. It's maybe part of it is that that we're freaked out as a culture by the ways in which men are walled off from legitimate emotional reactions. Well, I think we don't have to look at it as us facing the disappearance of these sorts of personal qualities. I think that you know, going back to what we were saying before. We can look at them as much more situational, and I think that's part of what's happening, especially in popular narratives that we now see women cast in roles where they're, they're stoic and they choke back a tear and then go on to attack you know, the, 
the evil heads of the capital in, in Pan Am and the Hunger Games. So we can see these things as, as being values of stoicism and of assertiveness, of bravery, but they don't have to be values that are gendered in the way that we've seen them before, and they don't have to be values that are required from people who are at home sitting by the bedside of their three-year-old child in the same way that they might actually be useful and laudable in somebody who's on a battlefield or who's facing some sort of personal trial at work. You know, there, there are situations in which stoicism is a good thing, in which stoicism is valuable, and in which we can look upon it and feel, you know, I mean, part of what we feel when men don't cry in painful situations is that we, when we're watching it, and this is especially in narratives, we feel the emotion ourselves much more strongly because they're choking it down. There's something about that scenario, about that drama, which we find affecting. Um, and we, we don't have to abandon that. It's just that we shouldn't be necessarily connecting it to masculinity. I, and I think the success of narratives in which women are put in those situations and display those qualities shows that it's actually not bound in our minds to gender as much as we imagine it is. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, we're going to be back with the wrap-up to this conversation about masculinity and the burgeoning field of men's studies. So I've broken on my knees, realizing what great was, then the sobby came with ease. Real men cry, all humans have emotion. Real men cry, and worship and devotion. sexist piece of garbage on brobible.com. Danica Patrick video shows off her tremendous flexibility in yoga pants and a sports bra. That is totally amazing. I'm just going to bookmark this for now. I'll get back to it later. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. The part of Bill Curry was played by the cast of Entourage. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff pounding brews and snapping towels, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, people with extraordinary abilities to figure out what happens next. And now, back to Colin. All right. We're talking about masculinity. We're talking about men's studies. We've got uh, at least one tweet uh, questioning the whole premise of men's studies. Uh, Francine says, oops, I lost Francine's thing. Uh, Francine says that uh, until recent, men have been the only thing that's uh, been studied until recently in medicine. Studies on women are just getting started. Hashtag crybabies. So, um, uh, well, we'll we'll skip past that for a second because I, one of the things I want to spend a little bit of time on in the the um, the time that remains. So, Michael Kimmel, early on, you were talking about a conversation uh, you had, I think, on talk radio or something, where um, a white male on the phone said uh, that a black woman stole, as he put it, my job, um, and that, of course has all kinds of eerie and unpleasant and frightening resonances, particularly to uh, to the Charleston shootings uh, and, and to this emergence uh, of this figure that we're becoming increasingly familiar with, too. I think Steve Allman referenced the, the Santa Barbara shooter, that one of the things that we seem to be hearing in some of the latest rounds of mass shooting is that sense of aggrieved maleness, of white male privilege uh, no longer being this kind of default setting that works in America, that Somehow or other, that doesn't work anymore. That's the thing that's lost. And, and I know that you've been thinking a lot about whether or not these things are the most extreme expressions of that feeling. Tell us where you're at right now. 
Well, you know, that's exactly uh, that's a really good summary of it. And I think these evocation of Elliot Rogers is a really good uh, a, a example of this also, of the sense of aggrieved entitlement. I mean, look, meritocracy sucks if you have been the beneficiary of all of the tilted policies that tilted everything your way. You know, if we only get 85 percent of the world's goodies when we used to get 99 point something percent of it, we're going to feel like, oh, my God, water's rushing uphill. It's reverse discrimination against us. You know, and, and that's the problem is you hear this kind of constant refrain. And this is why I do want to say something about the, the tweet that you got. This isn't about being crybabies, not in the least. This is using the, 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 the theories and the methods that have been developed by critical race scholars, by feminist scholars, by LGBT scholars to understand men's lives, to not to have that be decentered to have the men be examined as a gender, just as we've been doing with women. So this is a completely different way of framing it. This isn't crying and whining because we're not getting paid attention to. It's saying we have to pay attention to the superordinate, to white people, to heterosexuals, to, 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 to men, because it's, being, it's because it's been unexamined that it stayed the same, this way for so long. The... the, 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 uh, the, the um, the, the wheel is so un, unbalanced unless we also examine the, the, the those who benefit from inequality. So, Steve Allman, you know, I'm going to um, have you shift into one of your many different modes, and this one will be uh, as the co-host uh, of essentially an advice uh, podcast. So yeah. one of the things that I did today was I Googled the phrase, husband doesn't work. And I just got this cascade. And for the most, a lot of it was, in fact, women writing letters of complaint, either to advice columnists or message boards or, or whatever, about this sort of notion that the roles had reversed in a way that they didn't particularly like, you know, the, and that either the husband had just dropped out of the process because he saw the, the you know, the oasis of opportunity just drying up to a trickle or, or because of whatever kind of ennui or, 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 or enemy or helplessness. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that as somebody who traffics in advice now, you're running into this too. Like if we don't know what the male role is and men don't know what the male role is, uh, one option that they have is just to jump out of the plane and pull, pull the ripcord. Well, yeah, or pull the trigger in some cases. I mean, part of what you said at the beginning of the show, I think, was telling. You, it was a moment of levity, but you said, you know, well, I should make a decision. I'm a man. I should make a decision. And it was a real striking little example of the way that the male reflex operates. We, without even helping it, even as, you know, an NPR host, you still have that inner part of you that says, I'm a man, and that means I have moral surety. I'm decisive. And it means that, you know, I should be a certain way in the world. And even if it's not aggressive, it's at least sure of yourself. And a lot of what I see as a, you know, the host of this podcast, we get 98% of our letters are from women, partly because Cheryl has a large female audience, but also because those are the people who reflexively tend to self-examine and admit when they're troubled and confused. And one of the things that's characteristic of men at this moment in our history is we have a lot of cause to be deeply confused and feel a sense of dislocation, and yet a very ancient instinct that says, I'm a man, I don't feel doubt, and I certainly don't express doubt in a public way. And our solution to this, I think, and, and this is where the sort of sinister marketing part of this really, um, I think, makes everything that much worse, is we have these impossible standards to live up to, whether they're in pornography or whether they're in the sort of athletic industrial complex or this hyper-violent masculine popular culture that privileges physical courage 
over moral courage. They privilege his valor um, and the ability to inflict and absorb punishment over some kind of mercy, basically, to put it in Christian terms. And I feel like most men are sort of trapped. There, you know, I certainly feel that way in my regular life. I feel like there's a part of me that wants to not have to feel the inconvenient internal life that I do feel. And there's another part of me that knows that if I don't experience those feelings, they're going to come out in some unhealthy way, whether it's watching porn or, you know, getting off on, on the sanitized violence of football or bullying my, you know, my, my wife in some way. And, you know, it's a real dilemma. I think what Michael's getting at is we might as well start paying attention to those pathologies since, um, you know, men are in this situation that's unprecedented. We were in charge for eons and millennia, and all of a sudden we've become enlightened enough to recognize, why are you in charge? Just because you have a penis, you guys get to be in charge? It's nonsense. And I think men are still, in a sense, really, especially white men, especially privileged white men, are, are reacting to that with a tremendous sense of confusion and dislocation, and yet no capacity, no permission internally or externally to express all that confusion. All right. We're going to have to stop with that uh, final expression of confusion. Uh, but thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing this show. We'd love to continue the conversation with you on Twitter at WNPR Colin or at WNPR.org. The show will go up. Post your comments. Send me emails at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Thank you. You bought a tank? Yeah. There's nothing manlier than a tank. You got a vehicle that destroys the environment just to prove you're filling some outdated role of manliness? What do you get, like three miles to the gallon on that thing? Actually, no. It's biodiesel. Runs on French fry oil. I'm sorry. I thought... And Chuck Norris's tears. 